0: Welcome to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. This is episode 29, and you can find Microdigressions on Apple, Spotify, Audible, Amazon Music, Listen Notes, Stitcher, all sorts of places. So be sure to follow the podcast if you're on Twitter. The podcast handle is at adigressions, and my own handle is at J A Y case so not asking for any money or anything but you could follow and if you could put in a good word a good review i would very much appreciate it so what we're listening to this time is a song called little bits by johnny dog's trio recorded in 1929 from the openmusicarchive.org it's got all kinds of uh, really fun old tunes on it. Listen to that for a second. I like that a lot. I think it really swings. Not unlike one of my guests today. Don't get that joke. You will if you listen to this episode. So the subject today is moral expertise and my guests are going to be Oliver Trolley, my friend. Uh, He is a writing fellow at Heterodox Academy, and a philosophy graduate student at Notre Dame. Then we've got Jeffrey Miller, evolutionary psychologist and author of books such as Virtue Signaling and Mate, and then also Bo Weingard, essayist and independent scholar. And without further ado, here's the episode. So for the first time ever, I've got three guests on micro digressions. I've got Oliver Traldi. You've been on before a couple times.
1: Hey, good to talk to you again, Spencer.
0: Always a pleasure. And I've also got Jeffrey Miller. Hey, Spencer. Great to be here. And Bo Weingard. Hello. Delighted to be here. We are talking about this piece that we all contributed to in Quillette on moral expertise but was was it you who got that thing together yes yes cool so we each wrote 1000 words on the topic of moral expertise so this is going to be just like a companion podcast for that piece so i guess i just want to begin by talking about expertise in general so a few things about expertise that seem salient one is that it seems like it's an inherently comparative term or concept so you can't be an expert in something everyone knows or or something everyone can do like we're not experts in breathing i don't think that makes sense to say that somebody who is like a i don't know pulmonary doctor or something like that might be an expert in breathing in a different sense but it's got to be somewhat exclusive to be an expert likewise i think if everybody had the knowledge of the top physicists in the world it wouldn't make sense to say that we're all experts in in physics i think there just wouldn't be physics experts at that point because there'd be no comparison base what do you guys think
1: yeah yeah that sounds plausible to me for there to be an expert there must be a novice and uh you might even go further you might say that an expert relative to one person is not an expert relative to another. So you might think that not only is expert comparative in the sort of, you know, global sense, it's also comparative in the sense of being almost subjective so that you could be an expert relative to me, but then there could be somebody else who's an expert relative to you so that you're the novice relative to them, even though you're the expert relative to me. That I think is probably more controversial, but you, you could possibly go there. And that's the way that epistemologists sometimes seem to talk about it when they talk about how we assess other people's testimony and, and disagreement.
2: For folks who are listening who are worried that moral expertise implies a kind of elitism or a meritocracy or a sort of very exclusionary hierarchy, you know, a, another way to think about this might be there's a lot of skills where people just mature and get better, like, you know, Almost everybody gets pretty good at riding a bicycle or driving a car or figuring out like social niceties or how to do a zoom call. And so I think some aspects of morality might be a little bit more like that kind of developmental maturation process where you don't have to see it in a kind of
3: expertise elitist way. You can just sort of view it as like a a developmental competence. So I think a lot of this debate probably between me and Jeffrey, at least specifically, will wind up revolving around this point because the important question is, yeah, what is an expert? I think Anders Ericsson, who studies expertise at Florida State, for example, he'll say something such as it's the, you know, top handful of people at a particular talent or ability. I think Jeffrey, you will admit that if we define it that way, there probably isn't moral expertise, but we'll get into that. But I'm I'm comfortable putting expertise at like the top, say, 0. 0.5 percentile of some objectively measurable talent or skill. And then to Oliver's point that it's relative, I think that's important. I wouldn't go too far with that, mm-hmm. but I do think your comparison group matters. So for example, an expert at basketball at the high school I went to, which was an all-white small town high school. (laughs) The expert at basketball there would not even be an expert on the Michigan State University campus. And they would not whoever that an expert there would not be an expert in the NBA. So I do think the relative group matters. Yeah, I, I I
0: agree with that. I guess I have a bit of a different linguistic intuition here. It seems to me like I could say that a senior in college who's tutoring a freshman in logic has more expertise in logic in some sense but it seems weird to say that he's a logic expert to me or even a logic expert relative to I do think though that it seems like there's expertise relative to like times and cultures like a physicist who knew everything about physics that Galileo knew today would not be an expert but Galileo was certainly
3: an expert yeah, high school physics student <laughs> actually worth the high school physics student would at least have a more accurate view of the world. So, yeah, that's interesting. But I think the group comparison makes sense because often we're not even aware of the talents and skills of a larger group of people. So if I'm right. in my high school in Michigan and I'm not particularly cosmopolitan, maybe I think this is all there is to expert performance. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong from my perspective. Yeah,
2: for example, you know, Spencer, you're in Wuhan, China, and there's a lot of Westerners who grew up speaking English who didn't even kind of think of their native English fluency as a marketable skill because they just took it for granted. But then they go to a foreign country where there's high demand to learn English. And relative to that comparison group, Of total non native speakers, they have enough expertise that they can make a pretty good living teaching that. And I think my approach to moral expertise was kind of similar in terms of highlighting that most humans, to a remarkable degree, get a pretty high level of moral expertise in terms of treating other people pretty well under most conditions. For example, most toddlers ages three or four run around preschool, hitting other toddlers. The rates of physical aggression among toddlers are orders of magnitude higher than among adults. And most adults, however many faculty meetings you've been in, right, there's pretty low rates of actual physical aggression. So in terms maybe of inhibiting, too maybe two, <laughs> <we'd, laughs> some dueling might resolve a lot of issues in many departments, but you know, so, I think in terms of like inhibiting violence as a basic moral competence, most adults get like pretty good. Just like in terms of speaking our native language, we mostly get pretty good.
3: Yeah. So, this is, and maybe we can go on other things too, but I'll just point out that I think a major source of disagreement will be semantic here because, to Jeffrey's point, let's take a different example take tic tac toe. So if you've played a really young kid in tic-tac-toe, you'll laugh because you can beat the kid, right? Now, if you play an adult in tic-tac-toe, you'll be playing forever unless somebody gets drunk or something because the optimal tic-tac-toe strategy is pretty easy to discover and most adults who are familiar with the game know the optimal strategy. Now, we could say adults have a form of expertise, I suppose, relative to kids, but I don't know that anybody's going to get famous for being a tic tac toe expert because the knowledge is so ubiquitous, right? The optimal strategy. Whereas maybe connect four, there's actually more strategy to connect four. And then going up to chess, where, say, Magnus Carlsen's incredibly famous because that is an even more rare skill. I agree with Jeffrey, in fact. And I think probably we all agree that most people agree on most moral behaviors and immoral behaviors, and then there's a small range on which there's very intense disagreement. But because we agree on most of that, there aren't experts in the sense that you couldn't like go... uh, I don't have like a moral puzzle I'd be thinking about, and I have to consult Peter Singer because he's the only person who's figured out the answer to it. That would be my contention, at least.
0: One thing that's interesting about other forms of expertise, non-moral expertise, is it tends to be very specialized, especially now when we have so much knowledge. So I guess there are general practitioners, but you can also be like an oncologist or some doctor who works with some very specific condition or some particular part of the body or, you know, historian who works on some particular period or what have you. I wonder if moral expertise... Could be like that. Like, I guess I've heard of there being saints who specialize in a particular virtue, but it seems kind of odd. It strikes me as I have the impulse of thinking, like, if your specialty is honesty, that seems like there's something showy about that. Well, I want to see
3: if we all agree on this. So do we agree at least that expertise requires quasi-objective, measurable criteria? Would we all agree on that? Because then we can ask this specialization question, which is an interesting one. So would we agree on this? I think so.
0: I would even drop the quasi. I would go that far. I think, yeah, there got to be objective standards of measurement.
3: Okay, but like I was thinking of, let's suppose that we think about experts in poetry. I think you can have experts in poetry. Shakespeare was an expert at poetry. I don't think we could measure this the way that we could measure free throw performance. But I think... It's quasi-objective in that most relevant qualified professionals would agree that Shakespeare was one of the greatest poets in history. So I guess that's why I put quasi. We can't
0: quantify it, but I think there are general criteria where you could say that, you know, Shakespeare is more sophisticated than R.L. Stein. I think you Okay, that's... Yeah. (laughs) That's fair, yeah. I guess I think of a lot of
2: these individual differences traits in very kind of factor analytic terms, right? So on the one hand, in the domain of cognition, there's the G factor, there's general intelligence, which basically means if you invent any mental test that requires smarts in any way, and you have a bunch of those mental tests and you throw them at like thousands of people and you get their scores on each test, you can use this statistical method called factor analysis to extract a general factor, which means their scores across all those mental tests positively correlate, right? Not super highly, but they correlate enough that you can say some folks generally are smarter than others. Whereas in the personality trait domain, right, you throw a bunch of personality questions at people and you get typically at least five different factors, like the big five, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, emotional stability. I wonder if moral expertise... Is more like a G-factor thing where there are general positive correlations and some people are just kind of overall more moral, like across domains than other people are? Or is it more like big five personality traits where there's just like different domains of moral expertise that might not actually correlate that highly? I'm kind of curious what you guys think about that
3: perspective. So that's sort of what Spencer was getting at, right? So question on that, or maybe a, a important distinction is between explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge or rational knowledge and practical behavior. Because mm-hmm. I think most moral failures are not caused by stupidity or a lack of understanding. They're caused by a lack of will. That is to say, I know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. I know that I'm not supposed to steal this nice laptop, but I can't refrain from doing so. I wonder, because in that sense, there was a paper just came out that found that self-control is at least somewhat domain specific. And if that's true, then I think somebody might be particularly good with, let's say, the morality of relationships, but really bad with the morality of private property or something. I, I'm not sure, but that's a reasonable theory, if indeed self-control is an important facet or part of moral expertise, which I think
1: it is. So, Bo, I think this is a really important point, the the difference between what philosophers sometimes call knowledge that and knowledge how, or, or maybe you're thinking of it in terms of the difference between knowledge and the will or knowledge and desire or something like that. You know, one reason that we have a concept of expertise, at least in, in social epistemology is, uh, experts are people that we kind of take cues from in some way. We, we watch them or we listen to them. We defer to them in some sense, or we take them on as advisors in some way. And if moral expertise if kind of differences in behavior only boil down to differences in in what philosophers sometimes call accrasia, right, and weakness of will, Mm -hmm. if that's really the case, then we might think it's the case that kind of everybody already knows what to do. It's just there's only some people who can do it, right? And if that's the case, then we wouldn't have that much need for a concept of moral expertise from the perspective of me doing social epistemology, right? Because if everybody already knows nobody would need to defer to anybody else, right? Because you're not in the situation, in the logic situation or the physics situation, or in the situation of knowing about a country or, or knowing a language, not everybody already knows, right? People are trying to learn, and sometimes people are trying to learn in a robust way, and sometimes people are trying to just learn facts that the, they can then apply somewhere else without kind of learning, learning how to learn, so to speak. So if everybody already knows, then we might be in a situation where the nature of what we're looking for from an expert changes and the expert's relation to the so-called novices would be different than it might be in other fields. I don't know exactly what should come out of that, but it's something I wanted to flag from the social epistemology perspective.
3: So I would say Jeffrey's point, uh, making the distinction between toddlers and adults is really important here because I, I think people do have to learn certain norms and moral principles of their society because morality varies from society to society in important ways. And people do have to learn that. So if you ask a five-year-old about morality, as Piaget and Kohlberg found, right, among others, they'll give you different answers from what the average adult would give you. I do think among adults, the, the biggest difference in more moral sort of wisdom, if you will, is behavioral. Like, I don't, personally, and this is an interesting, you know, question to make it more concrete, I don't really think Peter Singer has more moral insight than my neighbor. I think he's better at justifying his moral beliefs Mm -hmm. than my neighbor is because he's learned the art of rhetoric and philosophical argument, but I don't actually think he's probably a better moral person because of his beliefs. He may be because he has more self-control or he's older and wiser or something, but I don't think he has a particular kind of knowledge that my neighbor, let's say, wouldn't have. But I do think adults have more knowledge than toddlers. So I will agree with Jeffrey on that. And I think that is an important point.
0: Oh, are you ruling out the possibility that Singer could be right in some of his positions? Mm,
3: Yeah, that's a good question. No. I should say I'm not a moral realist. (laughs) So philosophers have all kinds of terms for these belief systems. I'll call myself like a quasi realist in that I think that humans share many mental characteristics and therefore there are somewhat objective moral principles that we can agree on, but that those aren't real in some kind of Platonic sense. And therefore I, I don't think that like the the argumentation about abortion, for example, I don't think there's a truth of the matter. I think we have competing intuitions and we attempt to persuade each other of our intuitions, but I don't think there's any truth in the way that there's a truth about some long division problem, for example. So in that sense, I don't think Singer's closer to correct than anybody else. What about a
0: truth like um, the truth about The relative values of the yuan and the dollar. So that's a truth, but it's a socially
3: constructed truth. It's not Platonic. Yes, I think that's an interesting point. I'd have to think that through a little bit more. I'd have to think that through, actually, honestly. But I'm pretty skeptical of claims of moral experts in universities because what I don't like about it is that I think it rewards rhetorical prowess instead of actual like wisdom. And and it allows them to bully ordinary adults through their rhetorical prowess and pretending that they've achieved some kind of insight that simply doesn't exist, but they're better able to articulate it. That's what I don't like about that.
0: It's interesting. I would have thought that what you were going to say was that I'm not a moral realist. And that's what I don't like about this whole idea of professors claiming moral expertise. But then your reason for not liking professors claiming moral expertise was this moralistic one. They're using rhetoric to dominate people. And that sounds weirdly moralistic.
3: Well, okay, so let's take a different one that's a little little easier to grasp. So I don't think aesthetic judgments are objective either. So in some sense, I'm not an aesthetic realist. I do, however, make aesthetic judgments, and I would attempt to persuade other people that my aesthetic judgments are better than their aesthetic judgments. (laughs) So like, I want the world to look a certain way. And I guess that's my moral and aesthetic preference for the world. And I would attempt to persuade other people that it should look that way. I don't think there's anything objectively real about that, though. Nevertheless, I can't prevent myself from attempting to persuade my wife that, you know, T.S. Eliot's a better poet than Ezra Pound. That's just going to happen, and I think it's fun and interesting. I think the same thing about morality. Now, I would say, to your point about the U.N. dollar... Once we have some social agreement, then there really are like sort of objective moral truths in the fact that once we've all agreed like, hey, we really care about this value and this value, then we can actually try to adjudicate, well, what policies would lead to more of that? So if we agree that we're pronatalist, let's say we just agree that that's good, then we can argue about, well, what really would lead to higher fertility rates? And that would be objective. I think the exchange rate thing is kind of interesting because,
2: you know, there's some exchange rates that are pegged by government fiat. Like if China decides that the Yuan is going to have a certain exchange rate relative to the dollar and we are going to control capital flows and the economy such that we make that true, that's one sort of exchange rate. On the other hand, there's a pure supply-demand exchange rate that applies to other currency pairs where... There is an objective truth about the relative supply and demand. And that truth can either be aggregated by central authorities. Like you can have like Reuters or some central exchange say, we hereby declare like this is the supply and demand dynamics. Trust us. But there's any even more distributed kind of consensus protocol approach the like Oracle protocols like Chainlink would take where like you have thousands of validators kind of checking, right? What is the actual exchange rate and then some protocol for aggregating that knowledge. So I think we actually have a lot of these social consensus protocols. Like if you're deciding the guilt or innocence of someone charged with, you know, a crime, you have trial by jury, right? Not just trial by judge. And that's considered more legit, not because whether or not someone like actually committed manslaughter versus second-degree murder is objectively verifiable, but rather, if you get a bunch of reasonable adults in a room, you know, they can hopefully usually reach some consensus moral judgment. And so I think objective versus subjective isn't really where most of these questions lie. I think for most adult moral issues on the margin, where there's still some degree of debate, you, you try to invent some kind of, you know, chain link style consensus protocol or some kind of democratic institution that helps people kind of aggregate their moral judgments together. And so the real expertise is almost like socially distributed across people rather than
3: within one sort of moral saint I think that that's very reasonable, but here's a question. So I guess anybody can answer this, but more specifically just to Jeffrey after this point or or to Spencer, because it sounds like you might have been defending a more robust form of realism that I would defend. Do you think that maybe not? Maybe not. Okay. If there were an ISIS of realism, I would join it. I'm a pretty. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> So do you think that Peter Singer, let's say, could reveal a truth about abortion that I was unaware of and rip through the fabric of reality, as it were, and show me a moral truth? Or is it just trying to... And this makes it sound negative, but in some sense, hijack my intuitions to convince me to defer to his moral judgment. Because I see it as more of the latter, but I'm happy to listen to contrary opinions. Well, there are times when
0: I've been persuaded
3: of things when I don't think I was simply
0: bullied or manipulated. Mm -hmm. And I think most of us, I guess, recognize like an intuitive distinction between manipulating someone into accepting your opinion and actual persuasion. And I've been persuaded about a few things in my life. You know, Like most people, I tend to maintain my opinions for a while, but there have been things I've changed my mind about. I changed my mind about the morality of eating meat. I changed my mind about the war on terror. And I think part of the reason was that I heard good arguments. At first, I tried to rationalize them away, but This is how persuasion happens. First time you hear an argument, you swat it down, but then it kind of sticks in the back of your head and you keep coming up with more answers to it. And then you realize those aren't really satisfactory either. And then sometimes, rarely, but sometimes you flip your opinion. Although what happens more often is that you just lower your credence. So this is the other thing about persuasion is if I can convince you that The pro-life position is a little bit more plausible than you thought. That's still persuasion. It doesn't have to be this, you know, huge swing from one opinion to the other for reason to have played some role.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to weigh in on the expertise of moral philosophers. So I do think that there's such a thing as philosophical expertise. And I, I'm not sure that I think it's the same thing as moral expertise. So I think the expertise of moral philosophers is similar to the expertise of philosophers in other areas. I think I would broadly characterize it as what philosophers do. I think our job is to say, given that you have a certain set of commitments, what other commitments are rational? Where commitment is cashed out in terms of assent to a proposition or belief in a proposition or a certain level of credence in a proposition, right? So philosophers are people who can tell you, well, you think here are your positions on these issues, but you're going to need to take this position if you want to justify eating meat, or if you want to justify abortion, or if you want to justify going to war or something like that, right? Given the stances that you've already told me. And I think what moral philosophers generally aren't necessarily any better than anybody else at is saying, what should those initial commitments be. And then the other thing they're not any better generally than anybody else at is actually doing anything, actually being moral in their actions, right? So to me, the the really difficult questions of moral expertise have to do with whether there are people you should kind of defer to when it comes to first principles. I think there's clearly cases where you can defer. You don't even necessarily need an expert for this. If I take you to be my moral equal and you've thought for the past several months about the issue of like what the deadline should be for filling out a certain form or something like that, I'm going to say, geez, you know, I thought you were just as good as me in general. Now you spend months on this tiny issue. I just, I trust you, right? I'm never going to think that long about this tiny issue, right? And I don't think of that as being the hard question about moral expertise, right? We defer to others about, things that they've thought about a lot in all sorts of contexts. But the really hard questions of moral expertise are, do we ever defer on kind of foundational moral issues? And I think for people who are really used to the, the kind of norms of open liberal society, it seems odd to think that an adult would defer, although it seems normal to think that a child should defer and should learn foundational moral issues. Um, although not as much necessarily from explicit deference as from observation a lot of the time, which has to do, again, with the practical versus intellectual distinction. But in religious traditions, certainly, you do have simply, you know, talk to your, talk to your priest, talk to your rabbi, and they will just tell you, right? They will just tell you what right and wrong is in a, in a more foundational sense on this kind of issue. So I don't know. That's a bunch of distinctions that I think might be important.
2: I mean, a funny thing about the domain of morality is that back when you had a sort of coherent religious civilization where most people in a given society shared some faith and shared some respect for religious leaders, you actually did have that respect where if the priest says something's wrong, you kind of trust that they thought about it and I'm going to take their word for it and not kind of doubt them. But in modern multicultural secular societies that notion of moral expertise in many domains seems to have evaporated so that you often get a situation let's take peter singer let's take vegan ethics and animal welfare issues you'll often have a situation where somebody will say i have read these 12 books about animal ethics and they have persuaded me that eating factory farm meat is a bad idea Will you please, meat eater, allow me to make the case? Most like unreflected meat eaters will go, nope, I like the taste of bacon. I'm not going to defer to your expertise at all. Like you carry no weight whatsoever. And this, of course, can be enormously frustrating if you take these issues seriously. And I used to be in the like, well, bacon tastes good camp, you know, and then I met my now wife, Diana Fleischman, who'd been a vegan for 10 years before I met her, and she had a vegan podcast, and she read Peter Singer, and she did gradually persuade me to update on that. So now, like, I don't eat chicken. Now, the the fact that many people now will sort of fall back on their gut level, like moral intuitions about a topic, and reject so-called expertise, like, part of me sympathizes with that because many of the so-called experts are actually delusional now and are just using rhetoric, as Beau points out. But on the other hand, it's enormously frustrating to the moral philosophers and morally serious people who have thought about these issues. So part of me thinks, oh, moral expertise often boils down to, like, the diversity, equity, and inclusion trainer who is lecturing people about how to be politically correct and sensitive and use pronouns right and i viscerally reject that pseudo expertise but then part of me thinks no we really should take seriously moral philosophers who have focused on bioethics for their whole career and thought through things month after month and read hundreds of papers on it so i'm very ambivalent i guess when it comes to
3: whose moral expertise do you respect and why? I share that ambivalence about elites in general, Jeffrey. So like the the points that you're making, just like sort of summarize the dialectic that thunders in my head quite often. So everybody made great points. So Spencer, I I do want to say hijack is the inappropriate word there. I Because I agree that we can make a distinction, at least a practical distinction, between manipulation and persuasion. Maybe from an evolutionary perspective, persuasion is a form of manipulation. That is, it's making another organism behave in a way that you would like the organism to behave. But at least practically in the human world, we make that distinction. And I do agree that moral persuasion is possible. And Jeffrey. You pointed to an example of veganism, which is something I also have experience with and went down that same exact path. And then to Oliver's point, which I think is the important one. So, we would all say probably what happened is we had certain foundational values. Those might have been respect for sentience. Mine actually is not based on sentience, it's based more on like deontological principles. And I just find killing animals for human profit unseemly for whatever reason. I I, I mean, I could try to get to the bottom of that intuition, but I think it's just a fundamental starting point of my brain. And then just following that logic through though, which is the point Oliver, you were making about philosophers is that yes, like once we have these and we say, okay, look, I have these values, then we can say, okay, well, if you have that value, it's actually contradictory to do this or to support this, right? That makes sense to me. But Oliver, I don't think philosophers actually act the way you said they do, because let's suppose that I said this, I'm committed to racial domination. It's just my fundamental principle. I think that certain races should dominate other races. Do you think the average philosopher would say, well, there's no accounting for fundamental desires? <laughs> or would they say, no, that's an inappropriate fundamental
1: commitment? No, I do. I do think ph- philosophy, moral philosophy, would say, obviously, that they would generally would think there's something unethical. Well, they might think there's something unethical about that commitment, or they might think there's something unethical about kind of acting in furtherance or it consistently with that commitment or something like that. So obviously philosophers are going to have an opinion about that. But as you said before, that's not necessarily something where philosophers are going to do better than the average person, because the average person is also going to have a commitment about that. Right.
3: Right. But you would agree. And Jeffrey, I think this is the point you're getting to with these DEI, what we're calling now pseudo experts. But I think the reason we're calling them pseudo experts is because we don't like them and we don't agree with them. (laughs) But this is what I dislike about the moral thing, where I don't think there are objective criteria the way there are with aesthetic judgments or with physics or something, where I'm happy to defer to experts and I learn a lot from them. With morality, I just don't think we have these objective criteria. And what I resent is when people posture as experts. I'd rather defer to a priest, frankly, because I think the relationship's more honest. It's not based on pseudo rationality. It's based on an expectation of hierarchy. This person has a certain status in the community. I defer to this person and people can understand that. I don't like the manipulation of rationality and the the pretending that I've discovered that utilitarianism, not just utilitarianism, though, hedonic utilitarianism is true. And now I'm going to argue you into believing all of these things that I prefer morally. That's what I don't like and I viscerally resent. I I guess one way to cut through the Gordian knot
2: there of like very political or subjective responses to like, why do we really hate the DEI patronizing, you know, (laughs) virtue signaling idiots I would say one issue is they're simply empirically wrong, demonstrably wrong about many of their mental models of how the world works, and that if you actually understand the science that is relevant, like the behavior genetics and the population genetics and how society actually functions and is their notion of systemic racism falsifiable in any way, is it at all scientifically defensible? So it's not that I disagree with them necessarily about their basic moral values. It's just their entire worldview empirically, to me, as a scientist, strikes me as irrational, delusional, falsifiable, and actually falsified by decades of research. Th- that's So, fair, by so, consent. so yeah. consent. But, but likewise, I think with the vegans, often the difference between the vegan and the unreflective meat eater is just an actual lack of awareness about how factory farming does operate. It's an epistemological rather than an ethical difference.
3: That's an important point. And I think a lot of legitimate persuasion works the way Jeffrey's talking. With vegans, a lot of people simply don't know how their food gets to the table, right? So a lot of people might not know, let's say, how the criminal justice system works. And when they learn about it, they might change their mind about various features of it. So... I I do think that's important. I accept that.
1: I wanted to say about the, you know, jumping on the, the ragging on the DEI bureaucracy. Generally, we trust the experts, but even the experts, there are often reasons that we might be skeptical or that we might not follow what they say. We might look to what they do instead of what they say and things like that. And I think that some progressives are starting to be this way, are starting to take this kind of view. Even people who think that you're an expert might not defer to you because they might not trust you for some reason. And a common reason is that they might think that you have some sort of interest or bias that is leading your thinking to be motivated or is leading your talk to be insincere. You know, so a common example of this could be somebody like a a used car salesman or like a dentist who's recommending a lot of kind of unnecessary procedures, right? Humans are very good at just seeing, well, what is your interest in this scenario and how might it be affecting what you're presenting to me as an expert? And that's different from the evaluation kind of of your expertise in the subject area. That's the question of how much do I trust you? And I think a, a different way to, to doubt somebody like a DEI person is just to say, well, you have an interest in kind of you know, making a lot of money from doing a lot of workshops that involve taking this view. And in sort of taking a, taking on a certain moral stature in these sorts of conversations. So if you can kind of diagnose somebody's interests, which is something, you know, some of us try not to do because we think you should deal with people's arguments, but in the social world, we, we always need to think about what people's interests are in order to know whether or not to trust them. Um, and that's another reason that you might not defer to an expert. Even if you think that they are an expert, you might simply have reasons not to trust their thinking in a specific case or not to trust their talk.
3: So I agree with what you said, but I also think that there's just a fundamental difference in values. I prefer on average, some form of homogeneity in my environment. I just like it. I'm a neurotic person. I like order. I like stability. There are other people and they move to big cities, New York. (laughs) They like diversity. They like change. And they like ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, etc. I mean, we could debate w- which one's better, but one's better for me and one might be better for another person. There's just no truth of the matter there. What I resent is that people are taking their personal predilections and they're pretending that they're objectively true. And then they make philosophical arguments and mm-hmm. because they're educated, they're able to do that and to persuade or manipulate however you want to say it other people so i think there's just on a lot of these issues abortions another one they're just like fundamental competing intuitions and i think it would be better to just accept that we have different intuitions and that there's really no truth of the matter there and allow a space for those intuitions somehow hold on a
0: second though. So. Competing intuitions might mean there's no truth of the matter. It might mean that the truth is subjective, which is what you said in your essay, which is not the same as there not being a truth of the matter. Or it might mean that there's just a lot of uncertainty and we don't know what the truth of the matter is. Mm-hmm. And if there's a lot of moral uncertainty around abortion, that means maybe we should tread carefully about that. But I'm wondering, though, you know, I talk to certain people who are anti-realist in their philosophical inclinations about morality. And I get the sense that there are some people who don't want moral realism to be true. Like there's this group, anti-theists, people who, who think it would be bad if God existed mm-hmm. because uh, I would be deprived of autonomy. I'd be deprived of privacy. I think it's crazy. I think you add a perfect being to the universe to like, of course. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't accept yeah. anti-theism, but you, you get the of position. Care. Yeah. And and I wonder if there's like this. Nobody's put a label on this yet, but people like don't want there to be a morality because then I, I would have to do it, and I I wouldn't have this escape hatch of it all being hypothetical imperatives. Does that sound like it's describing you or or not?
3: I wish moral realism were true, and I, I spent see. a long time attempting to convince myself that it was. <laughs> so. I mean, I could be wrong about myself. We're all somewhat obscure to ourselves. But my view of my position is that it's sort of the reluctant fruit of many years of failure to find a good argument for moral realism. I'm kind of a consequentialist and utilitarian and sentientist.
2: So to me, moral realism simply boils down to, do you believe there are other sentient beings that can experience pleasure or pain well-being, or suffering in the world? Or are you basically a solipsist? To me, that's the fundamental moral <laughs> question. And if you believe there are other beings that can, that can experience pleasure or pain, and they're real, and they're just as real as as you are, an awful lot of morality, I think, can be derived from that simple observation or faith, right? And it does not require believing that there are sort of like platonic, objective moral truths up there somewhere abstractly that that exist that you have to follow. It doesn't require believing in some god that that gives you deontological imperatives like thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. It's simply you take other beings seriously and you take their interests seriously. And to me, that's the foundation of moral realism to the extent that you can expect any kind of moral realism to be true in a world that probably doesn't have you know, a god and where there weren't like bedrock moral imperatives like that emerged with the Big
3: Bang even before sentient <laughs> beings evolved, right? So there's the, the factual or empirical claim that other minds exist, okay. But then there's another value claim, which is that I should care about other minds. We could easily imagine an organism that evolved not only not to care about other minds, but Actively, to want to cause suffering, now you, you could imagine this organism, and let's say it was hanging out oh, with other organisms like itself, they might talk to each other about how they should cause more suffering because that would be the best thing to do, right So I guess i I agree with you once you take this step and you say, okay, other minds exist. that's a factual empirical claim, and I'm not a solipsist, so I will agree that that's true. Then the next one is, should we care about that?" I think we should, of course, to some degree, although I have some deontological principles too, but that is a value claim, right? Uh, In addition to the empirical claim.
2: Yeah, and of course, evolution has shaped us very much not to give a shit about those other sentient beings most of the (laughs) time in most domains, particularly if they're other species or they're outside our tribe or they're like sexual rivals or they're, you know, whatever. So evolution has shaped us very, very strongly to uh, be extremely selective about whose sentience we care about. I guess to me, the, the core of moral philosophy is trying to kind of get us to put those evolved intuitions in brackets and not to take them terribly seriously when it comes to the the level of public policy or political discussion. To get people to be more self-aware and to say, okay, just because you have an evolved intuition that says other species don't count, or other nations don't count, or future generations don't count. You know, we try to be a little more self-aware and from we, we try to helpfully remind each other about the importance of other sentient experience, even if we would not naturally care about it.
3: That's fair. So how about this question? Do we think that morality could be different but equally correct in different societies? That is to say, you know, the sort of progressive tendency is to look at, say, ancient Greece and think those people were horrible, sexist. That was a terrible patriarchy. What, you know, disgusting, immoral. I look at it and I think they were dealing with real challenges in the world and their social system worked for them. And within that social system, there are certain moral expectations that are, quote unquote, real Again, socially real, right? Like, the Greeks agreed to them by and large. From our perspective, maybe they were abhorrent, but they worked in that context. I I think morality is a product of intuitions and social negotiations. Once you negotiate some of this stuff, of course, it becomes basically objective. So in our society, if you murdered someone who was innocent, that would be wrong. I have no problem jailing that person and saying that's wrong. But I do think morality could be different in different societies, but equally correct in some sense.
1: It's funny that you said progressives were going to be the moralists. I thought you were going to make the opposite point. So it reminds me of an old tweet from a friend of mine that uh, did numbers, as the kids say. Progressives are relativists across space, but absolutists across time. Right. Yeah. Well, as conservatives <laughs> are absolutists across space, but relativists across time which I thought was just one of those things that you hear it and you're just like, that's, you know. It's a great observation. Don't need to add anything to that. But it it is an interesting thing in that sometimes we take consistency to itself be a moral value. But you, you might think that there's no reason even to be morally consistent. If you're not a moral realist, why not just kind of, okay, one day you're doing something that's in line with respect for other creatures, the next day you're not, and, you know, and why trouble yourself with it? But, you know, when it comes to I think philosophers, at least so as an example, using relativism and a, and absolutism as an example, tend to be tend to treat space and time similarly when it comes to the relativism absolutism question. I like something you said before about you were talking about preferences. I think there's a broader question about when we take something to be moral. W- one issue is when can we assess that? A feeling we have is a moral intuition or just a preference. I think that's one aspect of it. But there's other aspects that have to do with different kinds of normativity, which is kind of like a huge topic in philosophy right now. There are ways that I think things should go that don't have anything to do with morality. So if I think that you think that X equals three, then I think that you should also think that two X equals six, right? But I don't think you're being immoral if you fail to think that. Right, you're being bad at math, but I don't think you've done anything morally wrong. So the should has a different valence, right? Mm-hmm. I watch tennis and I say he shouldn't have hit that drop shot. When I say he shouldn't have hit that drop shot, he should have just gone for the forehand, right? That's not me saying what a horrible person, right, for hitting that drop shot. It's me making some different kind of assessment. So the issue of how do we recognize something as having a moral valence versus some other valence? I think is a difficult issue and it's a general issue that isn't simply about kind of subjectivity versus objectivity, but can be about different kinds of assessments, all of which could be objective in one sense or another.
3: I think that belief does have a normative component to it. That is to say, I think that when, I agree you might say you should think this is six and then I would say, oh, whoops, I did my math incorrectly. But if I refused to believe that there was a tree in front of me that you saw, I do think it would be a normative claim that I should believe that there's a tree there, right? So epistemology is ultimately somewhat normative. I think it's just all of us agree that you should believe what's true, or at least we think we believe that, right? So we don't debate the underlying normative uh, component of epistemology in the way we do with, you know, moral philosophy,
2: I think where epistemology gets moral is whenever it has high stakes. So if you believe X equals three, then 2X should equal six. That does not matter in elementary school math class, but it does start to matter if you're doing engineering and if the bridge collapses or the airplane falls to the ground or the company fails because the accountants got the math wrong. So whenever you've got high stakes because you're using epistemology or science or knowledge to do something that affects people's lives, then I think it does have a genuine moral component. And I think that's, you know, the whole rationale for like in the behavioral sciences when we had the replication crisis and we realized, oh my God, most of social psychology is absolute political bullshit. And it's been just basically progressive liberal politics validated through kind of pseudoscience for the last 70 years. That was an epistemological crisis, but also for those of us who are dubious about its politics, it was also very much a moral crisis. And I think for observers of the behavioral sciences, it's been treated that way, particularly by conservatives, where there's a massive loss of trust, not just in like public health authorities because of COVID, but in psychology and sociology because of these. Political biases that were like the unholy alliance of p hacking and statistical bad practices and partisan bias in terms of hypotheses and the interpretation of results and so forth.
0: Jeffrey, could I add one thing to what you said? As far as there being a moral valence to epistemology in high stakes cases, I agree with that. But I would want to say, I think there may be in low stakes cases too. And what I'm thinking of is W.K. Clifford's article, The Ethics of Belief. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with it. That's a classic. If you can get past the the Victorian prose. But he begins this article describing this ship owner who does not investigate the seaworthiness of his ship. And he allows it to go to sea. And all of these passengers die. And he says, well, he's guilty of killing those people because he had no right to believe on the evidence that he had. And what he goes on to argue is that every single false belief or unjustified belief that you have plays some role in developing patterns of thought that can lead you to do rash actions like that. So even in the the smallest aspects of life, being sloppy with your thinking is a weighty moral matter, he he argues. Yeah, I think I agree with that
2: on a couple of levels. One, you never quite know how a wrong belief is going to snowball into having major effects that you didn't anticipate. Number two, there's kind of habits of, of thinking and habits of epistemological correctness that, that you can cultivate from a kind of like cognitive virtue ethics perspective, right? So like, this is what we try to do when training graduate students. Like their first couple projects might not matter very much. They might never get even publish their master's thesis, but we try to get them to be thoughtful and accurate about, you know, uh, why are you excluding that data point? Why did you do the analysis wrong? Why are you only describing some of the results that fit your hypothesis? We try to cultivate habits of thought that are epistemologically virtuous because then hopefully when it really matters, when they're doing the high stakes, multi-site, large-scale studies that really relate to social policy issues, that they'll be better scientists.
3: So my objection to that Clifford argument has always been one largely based on evolutionary psychology, which is that beliefs are actually pretty domain specific and people often don't generalize from them. So for example, I've had neuroscientists who I I trusted to look at my brain and tell me about it, who were evangelical Christians Now, on the one hand, they had the belief that humans were fundamentally an immortal soul. (laughs) On the other hand, as scientists, they treated the human as a material object, right? And, like, all of my thoughts were caused by my brain. And (laughs) they were just able to have those two beliefs that would seem to contradict each other, like, pretty clearly, in my view and they just don't overlap. So like, I think people can have plenty of erroneous beliefs about the world, and they just don't cross over into other domains. You might think that praying is efficacious, but you're not going to take your hands off the steering wheel and just pray for an hour on the freeway, right? People don't tend to do that. So I don't know that I fully agree with that. I would prefer people have accurate beliefs simply because it's more appealing to me to talk to people who understand the world, but I don't know that every small belief actually has moral consequence. Yeah, I agree with that, that we are remarkably able to compartmentalize
2: and be domain-specific and have all kinds of hypocrisies and, and inconsistencies all over the place. I will say, though, when I visited Thailand for the first time, I was warned, if you get into a taxi and the person has an awful lot of Buddhist relics on the dashboard, they are fatalistic enough that they will be bad drivers, right? <laughs> that the, the, they will have the view that, that whether they get into an accident is foreordained and cannot be helped. And indeed, that did prove to be the case.
3: But I yeah, we're w- w- your cosmopolitan wisdom. <laughs>
2: But we're all used to hiring people to do all kinds of services for us where we don't really care about their political or religious views. Although that is being eroded, right? Now we're getting political virtue signaling across every domain so that now unless someone, you know, has the right views or introduces themselves with their pronouns, then we don't even want them as a handyman
3: or maid or Uber driver or whatever. Right. In a way that's disagreeable, I think you would agree, because I I think the important thing is understanding that people can do things in one domain and their beliefs in another aren't relevant. So, you know, the person you hire to chop meat at the store, I don't care about that person's political or religious views. And I don't think we should. I actually think it's bad to obsess about those views because it leads to contentiousness and hostility.
1: Yeah, totally agree with that. So one interesting thing to me about moral expertise in recent years has been there's been a push to argue there's no real fact-value distinction. Science is value-laden, right? And you can never really forget about moral and political values when you're doing science. Now, one thing you might say about that, you might say, you know, gee, I better make sure that I have the right values, that I do good science, right? And I better make sure that I have progressive values generally is what that means. But from the novice perspective, one thing you might think when you say this is, look, there are all these doubts about moral expertise that we have that are there when it comes to normal expertise. So to the extent that science is value-laden and that people are claiming that science is value-laden, we simply shouldn't trust it anymore. We simply lose reason to defer to it when people are insisting that it has moral and political valence. And I think that, in fact, this is what we've seen happen to a degree. And I think Jeffrey was talking about this as a kind of consequence of the replication crisis, but I also think it's kind of a rational consequence of what some people simply say about science, where even without knowing about the replication crisis, you can simply listen to the way some people talk about their jobs. And I think one instance of this was with public health during COVID, you guys probably remember that during the George Floyd protest, a lot of public health officials wrote and signed this letter about, you know, we should, racism is a public health crisis too, and so don't worry about getting COVID if blah, blah, blah. And you might just think, okay, if this is the way they're going to conduct themselves, then I simply don't trust them. Not even necessarily because I don't agree with their values, but maybe simply because I don't think that they're moral experts, they're scientists. And so there's no necessary reason to defer to them if they're also integrating political and moral values into their work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like, if they're willing to lie about that during a a time of heightened political tension, what else are they willing to lie about? And it absolutely destroyed faith in the CDC and public health and epidemiologists in general among
0: American conservatives. What they wish to do is to take the authority of, science and apply it to the uncertainty of politics. But in fact, they've imported the uncertainty of politics into their domain and undermined their authority.
1: That's a great formulation. I think that's exactly correct. I often compare this to the way that if you
3: work at a fast food restaurant, you no longer want to eat the food because you see how it's made. So when I got into graduate school, I became so much more skeptical of everything that was being produced by social scientists because I saw one, the the shoddy research practices, but also I just saw the infusion of progressive values into everything. I mean, there are departments called prejudice studies right now. Prejudice study would be cool if it were actually like empirically oriented and not premised on the fact that white men are racist, which is the premise of prejudice. It's like, we know white men are racist. Now let's figure out how bad that is. So yes, I think there are values to science. The values though are a commitment to open inquiry, not morally accusing people actually grappling with reality. And what these people are doing is they take that and they say, well, science is always value-laden because you have to care about the truth, et cetera, which is, that is true. But then they try to import progressive values into it. And that's what You know, you were saying about the George Floyd thing when the experts all wrote, you know, in the Atlantic, they said, no, this isn't actually flip-flopping because racism costs more lives than COVID will. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is Republicans have lost confidence in the institution of science. You can see this in polling. And I always argue this with people, Neil Grossman and I had an exchange on Twitter about this. Like they've lost it, as Oliver said, rationally. Because scientists are overwhelmingly progressive and their values have infused their work for way too many years now. I am like, imagine how progressives would feel, what they would say about universities if 70% of scientists voted for Trump and they were producing studies called abortion regret scale, you know, a a hierarchical resentment scale. Anti-American studies. Yeah, exactly. Anti-American. Why do people hate the country? Why do people hate white people? All these things. Like, yeah, so I agree completely. I think it's a very rational distrust of the oral values that are infecting the sciences.
0: Nathan Ballantine has this wonderful term, epistemic trespassing, when an expert uses his or her authority to go
3: into some other domain and claim authority. I like that. But here's a question for you, Spencer. It's like, let's, let's do the sort of steel man version of a health expert. Look, I know more than you do about this issue. I'm incredibly educated. I've worked on it for many, many years. I have better values than you do about the underlying issues here. And therefore you should listen to me and you should defer to me. And when I say, racism. It's worth it to go out and protest. You should defer to me. That's, that's their claim, right? A couple of things
0: to pick apart here. Uh, Another example that comes to my mind and one that I wrote something about on the the daily news blog for the 2020 election, which was over, I think it was the summer of 2019. There were doctors who were advocating for gun control by showing pictures of bloody floors where people who were gunshot victims were being treated and then saying, this is a public health issue. And I thought, okay, well, people get shot in wars. Are you a foreign policy expert now? You know, some of this is just a matter of empirical expertise and doctors, if they're not even specialists in all areas of medicine, how could they also be experts in all areas of policy and just the suspicion that they're trying to use their expertise to steal a base on some other issue is the sort of thing that causes people to lose trust in them. However, I did want to say this one thing and I I thought this is where you're going with the challenge, which is I am a realist. I also think that there's something to this idea that you have to bring values to science and, and education at some level at least in terms of what it is you choose to investigate. I don't think that can be truly value neutral. And I agree with what you guys are saying about truth-seeking as a value or objective inquiry as a value. I agree that's, that's a value, and it's an important one, but I don't think that can guide us as far as which searches we decide to undertake, like counting blades of grass in the quad.
3: It's not Everybody going to be yeah i agree i agree with that yeah okay i do too but i'm circumspect about the enthusiasm with which i will agree because it is true that a lot of people use this to bludgeon people who want to study human racial variation and what they say is well you you have to allocate your time why would you allocate it to something so reprehensible what's the point right and now i could try to you know, martial arguments about why it's important or whatever. But I guess at the end of the day, there are just fundamental value disagreements about what's important to know, right? So I do agree, but I, I'm a little reluctant to agree too much to that. And I would just kind of say people study what they're interested in and will sort of let the market decide what's important. Yeah, I mean,
2: because research involves allocating scarce talent and money and energy and, like, journal pages, there are value judgments about, like, what's the ROI on this research? What possible social benefits does it bring? But I think Bo's right that usually this argument is used to bludgeon people politically and to say, what you are studying is trivial because I don't want to take any challenges to my worldview seriously. You see this when you know carnivores make fun of animal welfare research. you see it when blank slaters make fun of behavior genetics. You see it when social psychologists make fun of evolutionary psychologists. You see it when educational psychologists who believe in multiple intelligences make fun of like g factor based intelligence research, et etc. And in most of those cases, I agree with Bo. I think people should be able to study whatever kind of Fascinates them because maybe they see the potential social value in exploring a topic, even if it is a little bit politically taboo. And I get this all the time. You know, I've been studying consensual non monogamy and polyamory and all that for the last few years. And people who are sort of unreflectively monogamous, who assume pair bonds must be institutionalized and lifelong and sanctified by marriage and any deviation from that is degenerate and immoral and and yeah. whatever like they don't see any value whatsoever in like studying polyamory as a research topic right and they even think it's evil it takes a while to explain to them why this might be beneficial and why even people who are experienced with polyamory might have some moral expertise
3: about relationships right that monogamous might not have you know, it occurs to me though that there are these values that I have too that I I can't deny that I do care about some things that we research. So, for example, I don't know if people have seen this—the scholar who is researching minor attracted persons and how they cope. I, I think there's a lot of unfair criticism of this person, and I think it's a she and her research. But you know, I was thinking, well, what if I did research on males with sadistic rape fantasies and how they cope, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be getting hired somewhere. <laughs> and I don't even object to that because I do think there is something immoral about studying it in the sense that it may condone it, even even implicitly. I, I think that's a legitimate worry. And I know I have contradictions here. So in fact, Jeffrey, I would argue that I, I don't like studying consensual non-monogamy, but you and I would have a debate about this and I would support your free speech, of course. And, you know, we could hammer it out and maybe I'd change my mind, but I I can actually see some legitimate
1: concerns there. I think there's a few different kinds of issues. One kind of take, I think this is the take John McWhorter had on studying certain matters of race. One take is kind of just like it can't go anywhere good. That's an interesting take, but I don't know much about it. Another one is sort of like, how could you be interested in this? The only people who would be interested in this will be doing some kind of motivated reasoning, right? So I think that's the intuitive perspective that I think a lot of people have on the person studying minor attracted persons, which I do think is kind of prima facie, a little bit unfair to say the only reason you could possibly be interested in in this is because you have some sort of personal stake or you're trying to open the field for this being acceptable um, and one consequence, maybe not the most important consequence, but one consequence is your research is going to be motivated. It's going to be plagued by confirmation bias. Could you come in with a preconceived view? But I think that there are more, I think Spencer might have been ta- thinking about more kind of quotidian issues about how we apportion our time and energy. So if you can imagine, right, like you're a research doctor and there's kind of, there's kind of a disease that you find intellectually really interesting that only affects five people. And you could be studying how to cure it. And there could be a disease that affects, you know, millions and millions of people, and you could be studying how to cure that. And say you're just like top of your field and you're confident, you know, 75% confident that you'll cure whatever disease, they're about equal difficulty, let's say. There's probably, there's no way of knowing that ahead of time, but let's just say you have some way of knowing they're equal difficulty. You have like a 75% confidence, either one you'll, you'll cure within five years, right? You might think, no matter how intellectually interesting it is, I simply ought to to do the thing that's going to have more impact. And so I think it's completely right that just like morality enters into belief in some sense, as you were saying, in high stakes cases, morality does seem to enter into the question of what we ought to study because of the stakes of knowing certain things and being able to put that into practice. I think it's something that a lot of philosophers worry about because we we say, look, we think of ourselves as pretty smart people, that's where we got into philosophy, but hey, philosophers never make progress. We never actually figure out anything new, right? We never actually do anything. So we worry that maybe we shouldn't be in philosophy. So I think that kind of worry is an ethical worry and is a sensible worry.
3: Do you think medicine's easier though? Because there's such a shared consensus that in medicine, the goal is to make healthier humans. There's not a lot of debate about that, right? it seems as though it's easier to adjudicate where one should allocate one's time.
1: Maybe, but, you know, imagine you're a physicist studying cold fusion, which I don't think, you know, probably isn't real, right? But imagine there there's two possible research programs you have. One is you're trying to show that one approach couldn't possibly result in cold fusion, and that's something you're intellectually interested in. Mm-hmm. The other one is you're trying to show that a, another approach can result in cold fusion, right? We right. might simply think the latter one is going to have massive changes for humanity, right? I think, obviously, medicine has more of an inherent link to the health and saving lives and things like that. Maybe the concept of health is socially constructed, who knows, whatever. But you can imagine the same thing coming up in in other fields. And I think even, you know, I was mentioning philosophy. Even in philosophy, you know, I think this is why some theoretical ethicists start studying applied ethics, right? they start thinking maybe somebody will take up my kind of concrete suggestions about Mm -hmm. this or that topic. I think this is why a lot of people do animal ethics, right? Because it seems like something where ethicists differ and sort of academics who've thought about it, you know, across fields, basically everybody here seems to have thought about it a lot more than I have, but they think maybe there's some sort of concrete intervention that they can make in the world. I have a lot of respect for the kind of disinterested ideal of research, but I think Spencer's right that Sort of prior to doing the actual research, you might simply think this is an area where it's possible to do some good. And that's better than an area, you know, morally better to enter into that area than an area where it's not possible to do any good.
2: Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's the effective altruist focus on cause prioritization. Try to find problems that are solvable and yeah. neglected and big in scope. And if you allocate more money to, to those, that's good. And that's one reason like I study human sexuality and relationships, because a large component of human well-being is based on the quality of sexual relationships. That's a major determinant of human flourishing and happiness. And yet it's relatively under-researched and underfunded compared to like, curing cancer, for example. I, I would prefer to cure bad marriages rather than cure cancer, honestly. And I think it deserves at least as much funding, and I'm biased <laughs> in that regard. But the question of, oh, this doesn't lead anywhere good, the views of that are entirely dependent on how scientists have been socialized to believe in like the relative costs and benefits of, let's say, believing in the genes matter versus believing in the blank slate. So if you are propagandized into believing that like uh, focusing on genes always leads to a Nazi Holocaust and believing in the blank slate never leads to a Stalin, Holodomor, or a uh, Killing Fields in Cambodia, then you'll have different
3: priors about what you think the, the, the risks are. I've changed my mind even slightly during this conversation to, yes, the values matter, and there's no way to get rid of them. And so, Jeffrey, would you agree, like, let's say that I think monogamy is the best orientation for society and that we should promote monogamy. And we, in fact, we should make it difficult for people to leave monogamous marriages. Now you might disagree with me, right? But would you agree that it would make sense for me to be suspicious of research that attempts to look at polyamory given that I don't want to promote it? I think if you genuinely believe that monogamy has benefits and is
2: superior to polyamory or superior to open or superior to swinging, you should welcome disinterested research that is objective that could assess those relative benefits as objectively as possible. What what I find ridiculous is when people are like, we shouldn't study poly because they like implicitly fear that Oh my God. What if we found that poly people are actually happier? And what if slightly open pair bonds actually have a lower divorce rate than entirely sexually closed? So I think a lot of the argument against the research is in bad faith. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me when my University of New Mexico colleague, Randy Thornhill published a book called the natural history of rape in yes. 2001. He got absolutely smeared and pilloried yes. and criticized. And People are like, well, how dare you study rape or how dare you study its evolutionary origins? Even though his mm-hmm. very first sentence was like, as scientists who believe we should eliminate rape from human yeah, life, who we think that right. the ability to understand its origins will help us eliminate it. Right. Most critics didn't even read the first sentence of the book. Likewise, I would encourage if anyone is a monogamist who thinks poly sucks. Come join me in doing some <laughs> empirical research on it. And let's Ad collab.
3: Let's see. Yeah, adversarial collaboration totally. Okay, so what do you think if I make the claim though that the concern is not necessarily that individuals are less happy, but rather that it's worse for society as a whole? And now the problem with that claim is that it's very difficult to study, obviously, because I mean we can look at it longitudinally. But there are always confounds. You know, Henrik, for example, has an article on the benefits of monogamy and how it evolves socially. But you can criticize that. There are plenty of confounds in it, right? But I do think your point is well taken that, okay, I should welcome it and I should argue against it. And and that should be the approach to it. So I, I do take that point. That's a very fair point.
2: I guess one thing I might add is like sometimes. It can be quite useful to let these weird little subcultures flourish because they try to push, let's say, social interactions in a particular direction. Like They try to explore some edge case, and they actually discover some moral expertise by going out and having those little adventures. For example, if you want to understand how to manage and minimize sexual jealousy— People who do polyamory have gotten very, very good at that, and they have a moral expertise about sexual jealousy that even monogamous people could learn from. Likewise, people who are into BDSM and kink might have a moral expertise about power dynamics in relationships that even non-kinky people could benefit from from learning about. So you almost need a certain amount of Like weird subculture exploration, even if they're exploring things that would be bad for most people to adopt, potentially, arguably, they might still discover valuable kind of moral insights. And sometimes it's just a matter of discovering, Oh, here is the reason why that doesn't work. I have discovered many hidden benefits to monogamy that most monogamists don't even recognize by trying to experiment like outside it and then you can kind of come back and report oh here's like four sort of chesterton's fence style reasons why monogamy has some hidden benefits you guys didn't even
3: realize so we let like a few crazy mules kick over chesterton's fence and then they come back all torn up and we're like yeah it's a good idea not to go through there
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, because people do forget why is the fence there, and you do Mm -hmm. periodically need reminders, and that's a sword I'm willing to fall on.
1: You know, I think a lot of this question of how to deal with research that's in an area where you already have an opinion does go, again, kind of go back to, to questions of trust, where trust is kind of the broad issue of should I defer to somebody, no matter what I think of their sincerity, is a little bit different from the question of trust, where If you distrust somebody, you might just think it doesn't matter what they're an expert in. I think this person is trying to use one area of expertise to launder into another or is trying to simply become an expert in order to say things that they already believe now, right? In philosophy, you even hear some people saying this kind of proudly where, you know, they say, I've had my philosophical views my whole life and I just, you know, went to philosophy school to kind of learn how to express them or something like that. You might think that's an odd kind of expertise. So, issues of trust are inescapable.
3: Well, I think what disconcerts me, Oliver and Jeffrey and Spencer, is that I've discovered that social scientists can find evidence for whatever they want to find evidence for. I mean, we can look at the history of social science or especially social psychology, which is the field I'm, with which I'm the most familiar. The, the reason for some skepticism. Is precisely because I realize that if you put together a lab of six progressives, they'll find evidence for their views. Likewise, if you put together a lab of six polyamorous advocates, you'll find evidence that supports their views. Now, that's why, and I'm, I know Jeffrey's open to this, so this is no criticism of Jeffrey. In fact, I, I, I laud his approach to science. He would say, let's do adversarial collaborations. And I'll just say my wife, Corey Clark, is the head of an adversarial collaboration thing at Penn. So do adversarial collaborations. It's a really good idea because that way. You have people who have both values and then they clash. And I trust those results a lot more. But I do get skeptical of advocates who clearly have moral views that they want to promote. And they go into the lab with those moral views and they want to justify them. And that's clearly their goal. Because I do think you can find results that support almost anything.
2: Oh, I, I agree with that. I've worked in sex research for whatever, 30 years, and the vast majority of sex researchers are now woke progressives with extremely narrow range of political views. So they could try to do adversarial collaborations, but they simply wouldn't be able to find any conservative sex researchers. They no longer exist, right? They're not even around. So mm-hmm. I'm about as conservative as they can find. And that makes things difficult. And I see how the, the sausage is made every day. I know exactly what you're talking about. If I wanted to show that like, there's a positive correlation between wokeness and mental illness, I know exactly how to construct that scale and exactly mm-hmm. how I could pursue that. And that is a, a big systemic problem in social sciences today.
0: Here's another area where expertise or investigation might be inextricably linked with values and moral assessments, history, you look at history, it requires a narrative and that requires some assessment about what human events are important and what, what the arc of the narrative is going to be. And there's been a a big change in American history research over the last, I, I don't know, last few decades where the narrative is some struggling oppressed group gets recognition finally and asserts itself and starts to dismantle the uh, system that oppressed it. And that's just sort of this pattern that is being used again and again. I'm getting this from the historian Patrick Allett, who objected to this trend.
3: Yeah, it's the zinification of history, right? The Howard zinification, <laughs> in which everything is a manichaean struggle of the people against the powerful. You know, he has the people's history of the U.S. And now there are innumerable people's history volumes.
0: Yeah. And so I don't think that's a good thing. But you have to have some values somewhere operating in this research. And I do think conservative critics sometimes lose sight of this. Like, I've heard people say, I'm tired of teachers teaching my students values. They should just be teaching the subjects and patriotism, and the Constitution. It's like, no, wait a minute. That's a value, too. So, I do think that I know exactly what your suspicion is. Is Anytime somebody says scientific research is value valence, you have good reason to be suspicious because, you're right, it's very often a pretext to just shut down a line of inquiry without a good rationalization for doing that, but the point has to be acknowledged that we do bring our values to bear on any kind of investigation we do, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. But how do we stop from going down this slippery slope toward where this is clearly being abused? I think the trouble is
2: when you have big, powerful institutions like a public schooling system where everybody wants to kind of capture the institution and, and weaponize it politically. So my solution to that is like school choice and government should have nothing to do with K through twelve education and probably nothing to do with higher education because then at least you're being honest that all education all portrayals of history, all prioritization of what knowledge should be taught is politically and and maybe religiously contentious and you should just let the parents and the community sort it out in a kind of market based way you shouldn't have an extremely powerful government institution like public schooling, where everyone's trying to capture it to promote their own political worldview. And I think likewise with scientific research in universities, the less government involvement, the better. I think personally, most research should be maybe done by think tanks that are more or less explicit about their political and religious and ideological commitments, rather than universities that are pretending to a kind of objectivity that they actually no longer have and never did
3: have really one part of the problem is underlying value diversity so in 1920 most historians shared similar values like we're an anglo society we're awesome the founders were awesome Let's look at what these great men did in history and why we are where we are. And then values started to change. And, and now you get to the point where people think it's more important to look at what women did during the Revolutionary War than what George Washington did. It's a legitimate approach to history. It's not one that I share. I don't find it particularly edifying, but I have conservative values, and I would just be honest about that. And I completely agree with you, Spencer. You're right. It's inevitably political, but I I have said, my brother and I have had many arguments about this, like K through 12 is inevitably propaganda. You're not teaching kids to think critically and Socratically about these issues. They're simply incapable of doing that. You're somewhat propagandizing them. But I think citizens need to be propagandized. They should share certain values about the country in which they live. They should think that the country in which they live is a great country and they should share its sort of like fundamental values.
2: Yeah. And like I've been teaching, you know, online courses for China the last year. And so I have quite a bit of uh, interaction with Chinese students and we have online discussion forums. I'm extremely struck by the fact that if you have a student body that's like 93% ethnic Han Chinese and where the authority, the Chinese communist party is an absolute political authority and is pretty secure and where you don't actually have to propagandize people that hard about lots of issues that aren't strictly relevant to Chinese communist party. The students are much freer to express disagreement about every other topic, every other topic that doesn't directly relate to, like Taiwan or Uyghurs or Tibet or Xi Jinping, every other topic, they're much more open and honest and and fierce in their debate than American students are. Because in America, everything matters politically. Every single
3: topic gets politicized sooner or later. So maybe it would be like if a sport has like really strict, well-known shared rules. Once you get that, then you can go crazy. But if you're contesting the rules, then you actually can't go crazy because there's not even agreement on those underlying fundamental rules.
0: Yeah. I think this is an important point about there aren't maybe enough recognized moral experts. Even if they weren't genuine, it might be a good thing if we, I mean, Americans, if Americans agreed on who certain experts were, who is trustworthy, and it just seems like we've always gotten by with a certain amount of very serious disagreement. Like the abortion fault line has been there for a long time now, but you can sort of get around that. But now it's like there are cracks going everywhere in the ground and you don't know, is the next one going to you know, be right between my legs and I'm going to have to jump on one side or the other? It seems like we've, there's got to be some degree of acknowledged expertise for a society to even cohere. And I think we're on the threshold, if
3: we haven't passed it already, of just losing that. To your point, Spencer, I think the real problem is, and I don't like to put it this way because it sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. There are people who literally hate the country that I want. They detest America and, and everything it used to stand for. They loathe it. They think it's a white supremacist, full of bigotry, sexism, et cetera. Now, I I think we should be honest about that instead of pretending that there's oh, that's that's not right. We still share all these no, we don't. We have very different values now in this country. We have people who want it to be majority brown and are advocating for that, and that's okay. That's a legitimate view, but I want to slow immigration. And there's just really no compromise to a lot of these issues, right? There's just no way to have a moral expert because we disagree so strenuously about the underlying value. I think that's right. I was just talking with Jonathan
2: Haidt at NYU, and he did this big Atlantic piece about how uh, social media is really hyper-polarizing America and that a kind of like ideological civil war is almost inevitable and in that context it's extremely hard to find any consensus about who the moral experts should be each side will develop its own notion of moral expertise but if there's no shared values to begin with i think it's it's inaccurate to say there are no moral values i think you know in my quillette piece i sort of tried to emphasize like there is a developmental timeline where it like most people, most of the time learn that like randomly hitting other people. If you get pissed off with them is bad, like you do when you're a toddler and like lying is generally bad and reckless driving is bad. But nobody on social media will say, Hey, everybody on Twitter, can we, can we all agree that like drunk driving is bad? And that's common ground. And, and that's a basis for American unity that you never see that. Right. We only argue about the stuff we argue about where there's moral
3: disagreement. I think the the social media is a problem. Like, I do think it's pouring gasoline on a fire. But I think the bigger problem, the one that obviously Haidt can't grapple with in that article or as much as he would want to, is just that there actually are irreconcilable differences that are much larger than they used to be. I think that's the fundamental problem, and that plays itself out on social media, and social media exacerbates it, but that's the fundamental problem. The, the United States is an incredibly diverse country now, and people just don't share these underlying values. I, no, I agree, Jeffrey. Like We agree on 98% of things, but we don't agree on 2%, and that 2 percent's really important, and it becomes salient to us because we use it as group markers.
2: Yeah. And maybe the country was always this divided. We just didn't know it because the way that media and journalism operated created a kind of illusion of consensus and an illusion of consensual moral expertise that did not actually reflect the diversity of what people believed. But we were kind of willing to play along with the fiction that, yeah, public schools can teach consensual values and the major legacy newspapers do reporting
3: that is fair and objective and blah, blah, blah. And social media has has wrecked that. Well, if we just look at religious beliefs, though, I think those would refute the hypothesis because it's actually just empirically the case that religious beliefs are more variegated in modern United States than they were in, say, 1910.
2: Well, you know, I'm old enough that I remember, like, elderly relatives who decided, oh, if someone converted from this branch of Protestantism to that branch, like, Methodist to Unitarian, like, they would never talk at all, ever again. So, like, in some sense, they're all Christian, but the sectarianism, I think, has always been there. Now, the sectarianism is broader because it includes not just different sects of, like, Protestant Christianity fighting, it's like
3: Christian versus Muslim versus atheist, but... Can we say empirically, though, that, like, say, three subgroups of Protestantism are closer together than, say, one group of Protestants and a group of Muslims? In some ways, yes, in some ways, no, but
0: that's a broader discussion. Uh, (laughs) Okay, fair enough. The narcissism of small differences, and then there's also just massive differences that are are irreconcilable. All right. Anyone have any closing thoughts?
2: I think it's been a very interesting debate. I think the four of us share quite a bit of common ground and maybe more than we thought in some ways when we started this. And we've also got some interesting points of disagreement. And and I hope listeners understand like, the issue of moral expertise and whether it exists is very closely tied to a lot of issues in contemporary politics, science, morality, social values, individual traits, etc., So it's not just a kind of arcane moral philosophy issue. It sort of touches on a lot of the most active debates currently in society and social media.
3: I will second that. And I just want to say I appreciate that everybody here contributed when I asked you to write a piece for Quilla. It was really nice of you. And I, I do really appreciate it. And it was a good conversation.
1: My pleasure. Yeah, I had a great time talking about these issues.
0: All right, I am now going to end with a short postscript. It's just Spencer here, because I want to. And as Bo would say, if I want to, what higher imperative could there possibly be for me to do something? So I'm going to do it. There are three points I thought I wanted to end with making. So one is this question of the significance of research and, you know, the potential conflict between the desire to pursue the truth and then the need to bring your values to whatever you do. So we had quite a bit of discussion about that. And one thing that occurred to me is this is a useful test. So would any outcome Any research outcome for something that is being proposed that we study be interesting or useful or beneficial for humanity in any way or any outcome that we could likely or conceivably discover. So the blades of grass question, no. There's no interesting answer to how many blades of grass are there in the quad. One number would be as uninteresting as the other. That might also be the case with the case that Bo brought up, the study of like male rape fantasies and how they cope. Like maybe that's just not important. Now, maybe if it turned out there were lots and lots of people like this and coping strategies affected their behavior in ways that affected themselves and other people. Okay, well then maybe there would be a case for that being important. But it seems likely that there's just nothing that would be interesting about just, say, detailing someone's sadistic fantasies or something as research. And so there's really nothing that that could turn up that would be interesting. Now, the stuff about race differences and polyamory, which were the other two things that came up, I think an open-minded person should say with those things that, yeah, there are things that we could conceivably uncover That would be interesting. Surely somebody who favors monogamy would be interested in showing polyamory to be a bad thing, point that Jeffrey made. And also, surely someone who's worried about race research would be very happy to find further evidence of human equality. So it seems like it's just certain results that aren't wanted. Whereas in the other two cases, it's just any kind of result is not really desirable. But in these cases, it seems like it's certain things that people would fear to discover. And that's part of the reason there's opposition to that kind of research. It makes me think that the whole objection is indeed often made in bad faith. Because if you would, in fact, be interested in certain sorts of results coming up, then it seems like you admit that the question is interesting. The second point I wanted to make is about distrust in institutions. I have this thought experiment. Suppose it was the case that there was a single doctor in the US who was killing patients and harvesting their organs and selling them or something like that, or maybe not even killing them sometimes, but what have you. There's a a doctor who's been found to be doing this for like 10 years or something. I could imagine just that alone, completely reducing faith in doctors. If there were like a huge media story about this, doctor's visits across the country might go down as a result of that. Now, what if it were the case that there were lots of doctors doing this of a particular kind? Let's say it's just cardiologists who've been conspiring for the last 10 years to harvest people's organs. Now, at that point, I would imagine people wouldn't just distrust cardiologists. I think they would distrust anyone who had anything to do with the medical profession, even if we had very, very good evidence that no one but cardiologists had any involvement in this. And the reason I think this is a worthwhile thought experiment is it goes to illustrate that if you had bad behavior by some intellectuals and some scientists, it's going to affect the way people see all of them, right? So here's another example that is worth bringing up. It was with... um, Peter Strazik of EcoHealth Alliance, uh, he and some colleagues wrote that letter that was published, I forget where, some medical journal, denouncing the whole lab origin theory of the uh, COVID-19 virus in Wuhan. And that was taken as definitive for a long time. And we still don't really know, I think, where it came from. A lot of people think that the lab theory is is still credible, and others believe it evolved naturally from animals. But whatever the case may be, it's not unreasonable to look at that and think that perhaps that letter was not solely motivated by pursuit of truth. Looked like there was some fairly obvious material and reputational interests, given that they had connections to the Wuhan lab in question. So things like that don't just draw those doctors into question. They draw into question, doctors generally, the whole scientific establishment generally, the whole establishment is going to be called into question because of that in people's minds. It's going to be very hard to ask people to keep in in their minds distinctions between all of these different kinds of experts and not categorize them in this very coarse-grained way. And so if we want scientists to continue to be trusted, then we have to be assiduous at, at policing all members of that class from behaving in ways that are intellectually dishonest. And I had one final point to make, and that had to do with this term that came up, especially with Bo and Oliver. They were talking about fundamental disagreement or fundamental values in, in the context of talking about... Disagreements with others or deference to others, the difference between fundamental deference and non-fundamental deference or fundamental disagreement and non-fundamental disagreement. And I wish we'd probe that a little bit more because I think it's often unclear what exactly is is meant by this. So fundamental could just be like your starting point or it could be sometimes I, th- I think Oliver actually used the term first principles. So like you think back, why do I think this? Why do I think this? Why do I think this? And then you, you come to the starting point where it seems like you can't come to some further rationale for why you think that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't one that's discoverable, right? You, you might not know the full ground for why you, you think something, or you might think something on the basis of a faulty ground, but there might be some good reason to think it that is discoverable to you at some point. But often I think that when we talk about fundamental disagreement, it's often talked about something that is irresolvable. It's it's a forward-looking sort of thing. So this is a point that Michelle Moody Adams makes, is that there's a lot of discussion about relativism in philosophical literature that mentions different societies having fundamental disagreement. And what's meant by that is disagreement that would not be resolved with any amount of, you know, dialogue and mutual investigation and that sort of thing going forward. And uh, Moody Adams makes the point, which I think is a very good one, is that we don't even know if that kind of disagreement really exists because we haven't actually done that kind of of thing. And, And you couldn't in principle. You don't know what continued dialogue might lead to. You don't know what kind of reassessments of of your own values might come about through a kind of extended inquiry that is ongoing. So I would just make that point because I think it undercuts this sort of appeal to disagreement as evidence against moral realism, as evidence that there can't be any one truth for us to converge on because there's so much fundamental disagreement well there's lots of disagreement but we can't know for sure how much of it is really fundamental so i think that's a, a point worth keeping in mind and that's all i've got all right so here is johnny dodd's trio again hope you enjoy it hope you enjoyed the episode